Chapter Sixteen of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods, by Ferdinand Ossendowski, Chapter Sixteen, in Mysterious Tibet. A fairly broad road led out from Sharke through the mountains, and on the fifth day of our two weeks' march to the south from the monastery, we emerged into the great bowl of the mountains in whose centre lay the large lake of Kokunor. If Finland deserves the ordinary title of the Land of Ten Thousand Lakes, the dominion of Kokunor may certainly with justice be called the Country of a Million Lakes. We skirted this lake on the west between it and Dulan Kit, zigzagging between the numerous swamps, lakes, and small rivers, deep and miry. The water was not here covered with ice, and only on the tops of the mountains did we feel the cold winds sharply. We rarely met the natives of the country, and only with greatest difficulty did our Kalmuk learn the course of the road from the occasional shepherds we passed. From the eastern shore of the lake of Tassoon, we worked round to a monastery on the further side, where we stopped for a short rest. Besides ourselves there were also another group of guests in the holy place. These were Tibetans. Their behaviour was very impertinent, and they refused to speak with us. They were all armed, chiefly with the Russian military rifles, and were draped with crossed bandoliers of cartridges with two or three pistols stowed beneath belts with more cartridges sticking out. They examined us very sharply, and we readily realized that they were estimating our martial strength. After they had left on that same day, I ordered our Kalmuk to inquire from the high priest of the temple exactly who they were. For a long time the monk gave evasive answers, but when I showed him the ring of Hutuktu Narabanchi and presented him with a large yellow hatyk, he became more communicative. "'Those are bad people,' he explained. Have a care of them. However, he was not willing to give their names, explaining his refusal by citing the law of Buddhist lands against pronouncing the name of one's father, teacher, or chief. Afterwards I found out that in North Tibet there exists the same custom as in North China. Here and there bands of Hunghutse wander about. They appear at the headquarters of the leading trading firms and at the monasteries, claim tribute, and after their collections become the protectors of the district. Probably this Tibetan monastery had in this band just such protectors. When we continued our trip, we frequently noticed single horsemen far away or on the horizon, apparently studying our movements with care. All our attempts to approach them and enter into conversation with them were entirely unsuccessful. On their speedy little horses they disappeared like shadows. As we reached the steep and difficult pass on the Hamshan, and were preparing to spend the night there, suddenly far up on a ridge above us appeared about forty horsemen with entirely white mounts, and without formal introduction or warning spattered us with a hail of bullets. Two of our officers fell with a cry. One had been instantly killed while the other lived some few minutes. I did not allow my men to shoot, but instead I raised a white flag and started forward with the Kalmuk for a parley. At first they fired two shots at us, but then ceased firing and sent down a group of riders from the ridge toward us. We began the parley. 
the Tibetans explain that Hamshan is a holy mountain, and that here one must not spend the night, advising us to proceed farther where we could consider ourselves in safety. They inquired from us whence we came and whither we were going, stated in answer to our information about the purpose of our journey, that they knew the Bolsheviki, and considered them the liberators of the people of Asia from the yoke of the white race. I certainly did not want to begin a political quarrel with them, and so turned back to our companions. Riding down the slope toward our camp, I waited momentarily for a shot in the back, but the Tibetan Hunhutsi did not shoot. We moved forward, leaving among the stones the bodies of two of our companions, as sad tribute to the difficulties and dangers of our journey. We rode all night, with our exhausted horses constantly stopping, and some lying down under us, but we forced them ever onward. At last, when the sun was at its zenith, we finally halted. Without unsaddling our horses, we gave them an opportunity to lie down for a little rest. Before us lay a broad, swampy plain, where was evidently the sources of the river Machu. Not far beyond lay the lake of Arungnor. We made our fire of cattle dung, and began boiling water for our tea. Again, without any warning, the bullets came raining in from all sides. Immediately we took cover behind convenient rocks and waited developments. The firing became faster and closer. The raiders appeared on the whole circle round us, and the bullets came ever in increasing numbers. We had fallen into a trap and had no hope but to perish. We realized this clearly. I tried anew to begin the parley, but when I stood up with my white flag, the answer was only a thicker rain of bullets, and unfortunately one of these, ricocheting off a rock, struck me in the left leg and lodged there. At the same moment another one of our company was killed. We had no other choice and were forced to begin fighting. The struggle continued for about two hours. Besides myself, three others received slight wounds. We resisted as long as we could. The Hunghutsi approached, and our situation became desperate. "'There's no choice,' said one of my associates, a very expert colonel. "'We must mount and ride for it. Anywhere!' Anywhere. It was a terrible word. We consulted for but an instant. It was apparent that with this band of cutthroats behind us, the farther we went into Tibet, the less chance we had of saving our lives. We decided to return to Mongolia. But how? That we did not know and thus we began our retreat. Firing all the time, we trotted our horses as fast as we could toward the north. One after another three of my companions fell. There lay my tartar with a bullet through his neck. After him two young and fine stalwart officers were carried from their saddles with cries of death, while their scared horses broke out across the plain in wild fear, perfect pictures of our distraught selves. This emboldened the Tibetans, who became more and more audacious. A bullet struck the buckle on the ankle-strap of my right foot and carried it, with a piece of leather and cloth, into my leg just above the ankle. My old and much-tried friend, the agronome, cried out as he grasped his shoulder, and then I saw him wiping and bandaging as best as he could his bleeding forehead. A second afterward our Kalmuk was hit twice, right through the palm of the same hand, so that it was entirely shattered. Just at this moment fifteen of the Hunghutsi rushed against us in a charge. 
"'Shoot at them with volley-fire!' commanded our colonel. Six robber bodies lay on the turf, while two others of the gang were unhorsed and ran scampering as fast as they could after their retreating fellows. Several minutes later the fire of our antagonists seized, and they raised a white flag. Two riders came forward toward us. In the parley it developed that their chief had been wounded through the chest, and they came to ask us to render first aid. At once I saw a ray of hope. I took my box of medicines and my groaning, cursing, wounded Kalmuk to interpret for me. "'Give that devil some cyanide of potassium,' urged my companions. But I devised another scheme. We were led to the wounded chief. There he lay on the saddle-cloths among the rocks, represented to us to be a Tibetan, but I at once recognized him from the cast of countenance to be a Sart, or Turkoman, probably from the southern part of Turkestan. He looked at me with a begging and frightened gaze. Examining him, I found the bullet had passed through his chest from left to right, so that he had lost much blood and was very weak. Conscientiously I did all that I could for him. In the first place I tried on my own tongue all the medicines to be used on him, even the iodoform, in order to demonstrate that there was no poison among them. I cauterized the wound with iodine, sprinkled it with iodoform, and applied the bandages. I ordered that the wounded man be not touched nor moved, and that he be left right where he lay. Then I taught a Tibetan how the dressing must be changed, and left with him medicated cotton, bandages, and a little iodoform. To the patient, in whom the fever was already developing, I gave a big dose of aspirin, and left several tablets of quinine with them. Afterwards, addressing myself to the bystanders through my Kalmuk, I said very solemnly, "'The wound is very dangerous, but I gave to your chief very strong medicine, and hope that he will recover. One condition, however, is necessary.' The bad demons which have rushed to his side for his unwarranted attack upon us innocent travellers will instantly kill him if another shot is let off against us. You must not even keep a single cartridge in your rifles. With these words I ordered the Kalmuk to empty his rifle, and I, at the same time, took all the cartridges out of my Mauser. The Tibetans instantly and very servilely followed my example. Remember that I told you, eleven days and eleven nights do not move from this place and do not charge your rifles. Otherwise the demon of death will snatch off your chief and will pursue you. And with these words I solemnly drew forth and raised above their heads the ring of Hutuktu Narabanshi. I returned to my companions and calmed them. I told them we were safe against further attack from the robbers, and that we must only guess the way to reach Mongolia. Our horses were so exhausted and thin that on their bones we could have hung our overcoats. We spent two days here, during which time I frequently visited my patient. It also gave us opportunity to bandage our own fortunately light wounds, and to secure a little rest, though unfortunately I had nothing but a jackknife with which to dig the bullet out of my left calf, and the shoemaker's accessories from my right ankle. Inquiring from the brigands about the caravan roads, we soon made our way out to one of the main routes, and had the good fortune to meet there the caravan of the young Mongol prince, Punzig, who was on a holy mission carrying a message from the living Buddha in Urga to the Dalai Lama in Lhasa. 
he helped us to purchase horses, camels, and food. With all our arms and supplies spent in barter during the journey for the purchase of transport and food, we returned stripped and broken to the Narabanchi Monastery, where we were welcomed by the Hutuktu. "'I knew you would come back,' said he. "'The divinations revealed it all to me.' With six of our little band left behind us in Tibet to pay the eternal toll of our dash for the south, we returned but twelve to the monastery, and waited there two weeks to readjust ourselves and learn how events would again set us afloat on this turbulent sea to steer for any port that destiny might indicate. The officers enlisted in the detachment which was then being formed in Mongolia to fight against the destroyers of their native land, the Bolsheviki. My original companion and I prepared to continue our journey over Mongolian plains with whatever further adventures and dangers might come in the struggle to escape to a place of safety. And now, with the scenes of that trying march so vividly recalled, I would dedicate these chapters to my gigantic, old, and ruggedly tried friend, the Agronome, to my Russian fellow-travellers, and, especially, to the sacred memory of those of our companions whose bodies lie cradled in the sleep among the mountains of Tibet, Colonel Ostrovsky, Captains Zuboff and Turov, Lieutenant Pisarjevsky, Cossack Vernagora, and Tartar Mohammed Spirin. Also here I express my deep thanks for help and friendship to the Prince of Tsoljak, Hereditary Noyon Talama, and to the Campo Gelong of Narabanchi Monastery, the Honourable Jelib Jeramsrap Hutuktu. End of chapter.